We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Do you get trapped in a cycle of negative thoughts? Do you have a loud and vocal inner critic that keeps running you down? Is it any wonder that you're gripped with self-doubt? If you're nodding along to these statements, you will not be alone. It's part of being human. But my witness today believes you're not just human, but an awesome human. Natalie Kogan is an expert on emotional fitness, an entrepreneur and the best-selling author of The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less and Thrive More in Work and Life. And her new book, The Awesome Human Journal, a toolkit for the tough days, the good days and all the days in between. And she also hosts a podcast herself. And I think you can guess what the title of the podcast is, Awesome Human Podcast. Well, welcome to my podcast. You stress a lot that we're both awesome and human. Why this particular combination? Thank you for having me, first of all. Grateful to be here. I mean something very specific when I call people awesome humans. It kind of emerged naturally, but I realized there was a meaning in it. I really believe that every single human in the world, every single one of you listening, you have something really unique to contribute in this lifetime. You have gift, many gifts. They could be through your work, through your craft, through how you are, through your energy. So you're awesome. That's the awesome. We all have it. But you're also human. And being human is hard. We have all kinds of emotions that come up and we have to contend with. Life throws challenges our way all the time. There's a lot of uncertainty, which our brain does not love. Your brain offers you all kinds of thoughts, including some that are not helpful. And you're not superhuman. You don't have unlimited energy. And so there's the human part of you. And so we're all awesome and we're all humans. And the thing, the giant lesson that I've learned from my own experience from working with so many people is that the only way that we can unleash our awesomeness, our gifts in the world is by caring for our humanness. Because actually, I'm afraid that the whole idea of describing myself as awesome, I feel a little bit uncomfortable about, to be perfectly mm. honest. I mean, looking back over the last few days, I've been anything but awesome. You know, I've put my foot in it. I've done things that I regret. Help me with this term, awesome. Yeah. So again, Andrea, I love that you just said this. So what you've just described is that over the past few days, you've been an awesome human, except your brain, which has a negativity bias, which focuses on the negative much more than anything else, has made you believe that, oh, I've just done a bunch of stuff I'm not proud of, or I've just done a bunch of negative stuff which is human, right? But you've probably forgotten about a lot of the awesome. You know, there's an exercise I do. I do a lot of keynote speaking and I always begin my talk. I ask my audience to turn to somebody on their right or their left and tell each other why they're an awesome human. And so many people look at me up and they're like, I, 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 I don't know, I'm not awesome. And it's incredible because this is such a beautiful illustration of what our brain does, right? 
I bet you if I asked you, Andrew, can you tell me about a recent mistake you've made? Can you come up with one? Yes, I haven't been. I've, despite being a therapist and uh, telling everybody to speak up about their problems, I can sometimes be a bit reticent when it comes to this at home. You know, I have training from a child, which was, you know, if you have emotions, if you have problems, you swallow them. Exactly. And it's rather difficult, even though I've spent many years working on it, it's sometimes difficult to undo that. Conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for being so open with your answer. But this is, as my daughter would say, a teachable moment, because look how easily your brain came up with something that you don't think you do well. And yet you told me that it feels weird to say something wonderful about yourself. And I guess in a way, that's the mission I'm on because, you know, my background, I'm, I, I did not grow up being taught that it's good to say good things about yourself. I grew up in a very, very loving family and I'm still very close with my parents, but it was considered a virtue to criticize yourself because that's how you improve, of course, if you constantly talk about all the things that are wrong with you. So I absolutely learned that behavior and, and it wasn't like my whole life I had this concept, but I went through a really difficult burnout and really kind of a breakdown several years ago. And as part of my recovery and kind of learning to be friends with myself, I realized that my brain has just focused the self-criticism, this constant obsession that we have with finding faults with ourselves and believing there's virtue in that and how uncomfortable I was, you just said you were, my audience members are, in acknowledging the awesomeness in ourselves. And I think it is so essential to recognize that we're both awesome. We have wonderful things about ourselves. Every single person does. And we have things we want to improve or we have things that were imperfect. That's the human part. But I'm sure you've come across this research. I love to say this, you know, when I speak, I asked my audience, I said, can you tell me how many guests, how many research studies show that constant self-criticism leads to self-improvement? And some people, I don't know, 10, some people, the answer is zero. Constant self-criticism, constantly focusing on what's wrong with ourselves actually reduces our motivation, reduces our ability to stick to things, reduces our ability to change. And it's actually when we find things about ourselves that we do appreciate, right, that gives us the mindset, gives us the safety to say, okay, well, these things are good about me and these things I want to improve. I, Andrea, I want to be a little bit more brave in sharing my difficult emotions with others. I, Natalie, would like to be a little less given into self-doubt that I have. I'd like to actually be bolder. And so this, I think, is the crux of it. It's not that I'm asking everyone to walk around and scream, I am amazing, everything about me is perfect. Not at all. But our brain does such a good job and our conditioning and our society teaches our brain. It does such a great job of pointing out all the things about us that are wrong or not good enough that we really need to do the other part. The self-appreciation, the acknowledgement of things that are good within us is such an important aspect of being human and of actually being able to improve in ways that we want to. So let me take that idea that you do in your workshop and turn it to you. If I was sitting next to you at one of your workshops and you had to tell me how you were awesome, what would you say? And remember, Andrew, to keep us honest, how I'm an awesome human. So it could be, so I'm, I have a great answer today. So today I'm an awesome human because for the holidays, we took my parents, it was their 50th wedding anniversary, and we organized this amazing trip for them. We went with them to Mexico City, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. And my husband and my daughter, we organized this 
amazing adventure for nine days and it was incredible, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> it was a lot. And I am an awesome human because even though I'm really exhausted and I'd rather be doing absolutely nothing, I have motivated myself to get some stuff done that I need to get done to be on this podcast, to do more interviews. And I have found a way to do it with enthusiasm. Brilliant. That really helps give us a sense of this. So what am I going to say that I'm awesome about today? Okay. I sent a whole load of texts that I've been putting off doing for quite a while. Oh, and I also paid some bank bills. It's another thing that I hate doing. So I did that as well. So you've done your awesome humanness for the day. And I think that's the other thing, Andrew, to bring up and to everyone listening. The other thing I do in my workshops is I have people, so some often people come, it's their team or they have a friend there. And I say, okay, so it's challenging for you to tell me why you're an awesome human. Tell me why your team member is an awesome human. Nobody has a problem ever. People have so much to say. Oh my God, yes, let me tell you, Andrew is this and Andrew is this. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we are very good at seeing the good in others and it's very comfortable for us to say wonderful things about others. But we have this challenge within ourselves and again, it comes from this deep-rooted sense of not enoughness that we're both conditioned in and that our brain is wonderful at reinforcing because it has this negativity bias. And so I often find that very illuminating that when I ask people to tell me why their friend or colleague is an awesome human, they don't hesitate for a second. So you arrived in the US at 13 as a refugee from Russia. What mm -hmm. would the Russian culture have to say about being awesome? A zero. Russian culture has a lot, had a lot to say of making you feel really bad about yourself so that you can get better. I actually praise Russian education. It was an incredible education system. I, you know, I came to the US, I was two to three years ahead in math. I was two to three years ahead in all the sciences. So it's a really actually was, I don't know what it is now, but at the time. So it was a very holistic, so it was good, but the, it had this concept in everything that to kind of make you feel like you're not good enough so that you can get better. I'll give you an example. This is actually not about school, but it's cultural. So I was a dancer in Russia, not a classical ballerina, but a folk dancer with a pretty well-known kids group. And we would perform at very large halls from time to time, concert halls. And after the performance, so when we completed our final dance, when the whole company was on stage and we were done, you know, applause, standing ovation, all kinds, and the curtain comes down, we were not allowed to move. So you're in this final formation. And the head of the company would walk around and she would walk up to every single one of us. And this is starting when I was six and up until I was 13. And the ritual was she would walk up to every single one of us and scream at us about things we did wrong. This was how we concluded our dance performance. <laughs> okay. And I thought you were supposed to get flowers or something like that. No, no, because the thing is, that was the ethos of you're going to get better. And guess what? We were pretty amazing. We were pretty amazing because no imperfection was tolerated. But at the same time, it, you know, we were proud of being amazing, but it removed a lot of joy and <laughs> the standard was high. And that came through in everything. You know, I remember one of my math teachers, I think I was in third or fourth grade. So we're, I'm talking about we're young kids. And we had these, outside of school, we had these math Olympiads where you would go and compete in these math Olympiads. And my father, who's also a mathematician and a physicist, so he would take me to these math Olympiads. And his favorite thing was to sign me up for a couple grades ahead of me and not tell me. 
And so one time I won, and not only did I win, but I won in a category of for fifth graders, and I was in third grade. So I come back, and I'm excitedly telling my math teacher this, because this is a giant achievement. And my math teacher, and she looks at me and says, well, why didn't you compete in sixth grade category? <gasps> <laughs> so that was the Russian culture. And I do believe that there is, you know, as always, there's two sides to everything. It didn't make you great at things. It did make you want to aspire to be great, but it created this constant sense of not good enoughness and a lot of hardship. And so I am very much, you know, I'm a Russian Jew and Jews were also very good at I'm not good enough. And as a refugee, I came to this country. I, all of a sudden I was stupid because I didn't speak the language. So all of a sudden the star student, I was failing my classes. I had no friends. Everyone was making fun of me. So I had all these reasons to feel completely terrible and not good enough. And I did. And I did. And that drove me for a lot of my life. That became my motivation. That's why I thought it was a good thing. I felt terrible about myself. I constantly felt like I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't good enough mom. I wasn't good enough wife. I wasn't good enough entrepreneur. And I thought, okay, this is how you're supposed to feel. You're always supposed to feel not good enough. That's how you improve. And then seven years ago, I just stopped being able to function. I, when I say I burnt out, I mean I burnt out in every spiritual, emotional, physical way. So and what happened? I, you know, in retrospect, I was burning out daily for years. I mean, I was pushing myself beyond capacity, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally, because I constantly felt like I wasn't good enough. So I have to do something that is worth it. I mean, I had two jobs, all kinds of things. And then there came a moment and I was, I started this company called Happier. I was running, it's ironic. I was helping hundreds of thousands of people be happier. <laughs> we had this gratitude app that was very popular, but I was really, really in a dark place. And it, there came a moment where I just, I could not push through. And the way, the closest way I can describe it, Andrew, is like, that willpower that I'd always relied on to just push through, I just didn't have it anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't function. And so I had to shut down the company and lay off my team, and which was brutally difficult, especially for the perfectionist like me. I mean, I, I was so ashamed. I was like, this is it. I failed. I failed as a human being. I failed at life. That's it. Look at me. I'm really not good enough. But in a way, that was a gift. It was a very hard gift, but it was a gift because for the first time in my life, I had to consciously and intentionally figure out not just how to heal and function, but actually figure out if there's a different way to be. And I did. And that's why I do what I do now. But I share this and I appreciate you asking because none of what I share now came naturally to me. I wasn't born this way. But that's also why I feel I'm a great teacher because I didn't spend most of my life thinking I was an awesome human or actually acknowledging I was human at all. So let's look at negative thoughts. Your mm. central idea is that we can edit our thoughts. Mm -hmm. How does this work? Yes. And this is, I think it's such a powerful thing to talk about. You know, I probably, like many of your listeners, spent most of my life, whatever thoughts my brain had, I just went with them. Like, that's the thought, you know? So I have a thought, I'm a terrible human being, or this person is annoying, or life is terrible. I just go along with it. And I think it's so important to recognize that our brain, your brain, is not an accurate reporter of reality. Your brain does not give you facts. Your brain tells stories. There are too many data points for the human brain to take in at any given moment. Right now, all around us, there's thousands of things we could pay attention to. The brain can't do it, so it chooses. 
And because the brain really doesn't care about our happiness or anything else, the brain really just cares about keeping us safe from danger. The brain is always looking out for those data points that indicate possible danger. You know, and we used to face a lot of physical danger, you know, giant boulders falling on us or packs of wolves running at us. So our brain is very good at looking for negative data points or things that feel very alarming. And it takes those data points and then it makes a story based on them. And that story is also usually overly negative because this, the brain has what's called a negativity bias because of this danger obsession. It focuses on the negative much more than the positive. So what you have to recognize is the thoughts your brain is giving you are overly negative. They're not based on facts. They're based on things, as I've just explained, the brain chooses. And it's an incredibly powerful thing to recognize that you can edit those thoughts. You do not have to just accept what your brain gives you. So the first thing to think about is, is it a thought or is it a fact? Mm. And in fact, the way I exactly on that, there's these two questions that I offer for how to edit your thoughts. So when you have a thought, let me give you a great example. It's a very simple example. So I live outside of Boston and apparently we're getting a giant snowstorm on Sunday. It's common in the winter. It's a little early. We have plans to see dear friends we haven't seen. We have to drive. So as soon as a snowstorm was announced, my brain is running this track of, oh my God, I hate we're getting this snowstorm and we have these plans and we have to cancel everything. It's so annoying. My brain is running this loop, right? Well, that's draining my energy. It's not very fueling. So here's how I would edit those thoughts. And editing your thoughts doesn't mean you change reality. I can't do anything about the weather, obviously. So the first question to ask is, is this thought true? So to your point, what are the facts to support the story that my brain has told me there's going to be a snowstorm, the weekend is ruined, everything is awful? Well, if I actually read the forecast, and I did to edit my thoughts, there's a 30% chance that we're getting more than two inches of snow. So it could be a lot of snow, or it could not. <laughs> if we get two inches of snow, that's really not a big deal. So the thought is not entirely true that we're going to have this apocalyptic, horrible weekend. And the second thing, the second question to ask when you edit your thoughts, which I find even more helpful, is this thought helpful? Like just continuing to focus on this thought about how we're going to have a horrible weekend and we're never going to see our friends and everything is ruined. Is that fueling? Is that motivating me? Does that actually help me move forward in any way? No, that just makes me more frustrated and annoyed and then annoying to others. And the third part of editing your thoughts is then to ask, what would be a more helpful thought? And so the thought that I'm choosing in this very common scenario, very simple thing is we could have a snowstorm and that would be really frustrating, but there's a chance that it's not that bad and we could see our friends. I didn't, I'm not doing, this is not forced positive thinking. I hate that. It doesn't work. This is not, I'm not pretending. I've just edited the thought from, oh my God, this weekend is ruined. Everything is terrible, which is really stressful to we could have a lot of snow and then we miss seeing our friends, but there's actually a chance that it could work out. And that thought allows me to move through my days with less stress and less anxiety. And I think that's really powerful. And if you're going to change the way that you're responding to your thoughts, you're really going to need to do it more than just once. I mean, right yeah. at the very centre of this is you recommend a daily practice, preferably mm. at the beginning of the day. Why at the beginning of the day? So, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that the way that we begin our day really impacts how we feel and what we think about for the rest of the day. I think of the brain as kind of a small child and it has a lot of inertia. 
you know, I have a 19 year old daughter, so she's older now, but when she was little, you know, she had an annoying morning, like if she couldn't find her favorite sock or something on the way to preschool, the rest of the day, she's just in a bad mood and everything is annoying. And I think we all know this, right? The whole cliche about getting up on the wrong side of the bed, it's actually true. Because once the brain is in a certain direction, it moves in that direction. The brain is always looking for a path of least resistance. And so I think it is really important that you intentionally begin your day with a practice that allows you to focus yourself, your thoughts, and your feelings in the most fueling, productive way. And so the first thing that I recommend that you do in the morning, I did this before I joined this podcast, is you check in with yourself. You actually say, how how am I feeling? Like, what am I thinking about? How am I feeling? So I'm going to take you through some of your questions today. So how am I feeling today? Mm. I'm feeling a little frazzled because given that this is the first couple of days since our amazing trip and vacation, I have not yet kind of flown into my routine. And I'm a little frazzled because I'm a really disciplined person, but I actually forgot about an appointment recently. So I'm feeling a little bit frazzled and kind of uncentered. So what would I say to a friend who felt this way? It's okay. It's understandable. You just did this like amazing journey with your parents. It is completely normal that you can't just snap your fingers and everything falls into place. Give yourself a break and you'll fall into your routine in a couple of days. And that practice, the question you just asked, Andrew, is really about practicing self-compassion. What can I let go of today? Uh, By the way, I love this question. So I'll say it again. What can I let go of today? I can let go of my, <laughs> my brain's desire to have everything perfect very, very, very quickly after a lot of things in my day in life got changed. I can let go of the fact that my brain really wants everything to just line up. And just for completeness, today I'm an awesome human being because... Today, I'm an awesome human being because I am focusing on bringing my best enthusiasm and best being into all the interactions that I have without having kind of everything settled and in a perfect place. That's brilliant. And I can really see how that will help. And as somebody who also does a daily practice, mine's around meditation, you really have to keep going. At the beginning, you don't notice anything, but Really don't just do it three times, do it 30 times before you decide anything. So let's look more at negative thought patterns because we can interrupt a negative thought pattern before it's sort of really got going. So take me through some opportunities for interrupting a negative thought pattern. So my favorite way to interrupt a negative thought pattern is with gratitude. First, just to, I I think everybody probably knows what gratitude is, but the way that I define gratitude is It's about focusing your attention on the small positive moments that are already there in your day, even when things are bad or challenging. And so when we focus our attention on gratitude, we cannot be annoyed and grateful at the same time. We cannot focus on negative thoughts and be grateful at the same time. So one of my favorite interruption techniques is, let's say, let's let's take my snowstorm example. Let's just go with it, right? It's a really annoying thought. So oh my God, the weekend is ruined. We're getting the snowstorm. I'm so frustrated. Before it kind of becomes the loop, I can say, but, so the but is a really powerful word. So yes, there's a snowstorm coming. It could ruin our weekend, but I'm really grateful that we're back from our trip and we're not flying on this day and that my parents and I are home safe. 
So now I'm not denying the frustration. I'm not denying that that the snowstorm could come. I think it's, again, it's really important to have authenticity. I don't buy this positive thinking all the time stuff. It really doesn't work. You can't lie to your brain. But the but, and then you focus on something you're grateful for. And I really am grateful that we flew in and we're safe and we're not flying in a snowstorm. And you can hear it in my voice, Andrew. As soon as I focus on something I'm grateful for, I'm more peaceful. I'm more calm. And that is a great way to interrupt a negative thought pattern is use the but. So acknowledge the thought, acknowledge what it is, and then say but, and then think of one or two or three really small specific things that you're grateful for. And it'll shift your brain's attention and inertia. And here's another one. Zoom out. Tell me about how zoom out works. Mm, You know, when we have something that's frustrating or we're worrying about something in our life, right? Worry is a really big thing. The brain worries a lot. And I just want to say as a kind of caveat, and you probably know this, a lot of the worrying that your brain is doing, it's trying to be helpful. It's worrying about something in the future because it wants to figure out how to protect you from danger. So it thinks it's being productive. But if you're worrying or some, about something or something, you know, when you're stressed about something, like that's all you can think about. You have this tunnel vision. So by zooming out, what I suggest is you zoom out and you look at not just this thing that you're stressed about, but you look at more of the surface area of your life. And maybe not just today, maybe you look at this week or a month and you zoom out and you think about, okay, well, this thing is stressful, sure, but there's all these other things that are okay in my life that are fine. And by doing that, again, I think it's really important. You're not negating your emotion of worry or stress. I think it's really important to acknowledge it, but you're showing to your brain, hey, look, brain, this thing is really stressful, but there's other things that are okay. And that's really, really helpful. It helps your brain to feel safer. And your third technique is take a walk outside. This is one of the easiest things and one of my daily anchors. So I, every single day, I take a walk outside first thing in the morning. But it's also such a powerful way to interrupt negative thoughts because even when you take a five-minute walk outside or a 10-minute walk outside, it allows your brain, first of all, you change a physical surrounding. It's Your brain is interrupted whenever you go into a different physical surrounding. But there's so much research that shows that just a five to 10 minute walk, it improves your mood. It allows you to refresh. And one really cool geeky brain thing to know, just the experience of walking and watching as things pass you, you know, you're walking past houses or buildings or trees, that is very calming for your brain. And so when you take this five to 10 minute walk outside, you're naturally resetting your brain, allowing it to interrupt that one stressful thought and to kind of feel more calm and centered. I mean, I have a dog, so um, I know all about the value of taking a walk. But if you leave your phone behind, you can't actually do any work. You can just focus on the walk. And dogs are wonderful creatures for focusing on the moment because they're not thinking about anything beyond, you know, what smells nice on the tree. And in my the case of my dog, what am I going to find to eat somewhere? And that's quite a good lesson. It is a wonderful lesson. And, you know, I do bring my phone on my walks, but not so that I can do work. I listen to books. I love listening to books, but I have a couple rules. I don't listen to a lot of nonfiction, so I don't listen to any kind of how-to or anything that kind of engages that frontal cortex, like thinking analytical brain. I love to listen to fiction. 
yeah, mostly fiction. I love bio. I'm an artist as well. I love biographies of artists. And so for me, going for a walk and listening to something beautiful or elevating or inspiring, like it's a wonderful experience. And it allows me to kind of, again, take a break from the worries, take a break from the work. Now, one way to deal with those negative thoughts is something that sort of comes slightly from the left field, and that's the creativity. So why Mm. is creativity so important, do you feel? Yes, I think that at least in our modern society, we've really become disconnected from our inner creativity. You know, so I paint, you're looking at one of my paintings behind me, the cover of my book and the journal is a piece of my art. I didn't start painting, Andrew, until after I burnt out. I've always wanted to do it, but I never let myself because, you know, it didn't agree with the narrow story I told of who I was. But I began to paint and I, I love to paint. I don't do it that often because I have a lot of other responsibilities, but it's a, it's for me was a big part of my healing. And it's a big part of what allows me to have a very fulfilling life. Cause that's an aspect of me. And I often, people tell me like, Oh, you know, it's so cool. You're so talented. You're so creative. Everybody is creative to be alive is to be creative. And I think we've become disconnected from that. And the reason that doing something creative, whether it's taking photos or doodling or drawing or watercolor or photography or singing, whatever your creative outlet is, It is such a powerful way to kind of literally get out of your head because it connects you to something within you that is deeper than that. We all have this creative impulse, right? Carl Jung talks about creativity as one of the core human impulses, like when you get hungry or you're thirsty. We all have this impulse to be creative. But again, what you and I talked about, we have a lot of conditioning in our society that some people are creative and other people are not. You know, and so we start to put ourselves into those categories. But I think doing something creative, again, whatever it is that feels aligned with you, is a really powerful way to connect to other parts of yourself, deeper parts of yourself than just kind of your thinking brain. And doing something creative improves your mood. It makes you happier. It actually helps you process all kinds of difficult emotions that maybe you're not even aware of. But it was really quite difficult for you to accept your creativity as an artist, that you were awesome enough. and. I sort of get the sense that designing your own book was sort of quite a difficult thing to, not actually difficult to do the task, but actually difficult to say to your publishers, look, I'll design it myself. Because, I mean, I know enough about publishing to know they thought, oh, blooming heck. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. You know, I am... I am incredibly lucky and very grateful. Sounds true. They're an incredible publisher. I've done all my books with them. And when I was talking to my publisher, Jamie, about creating this journal, I've already had some handwritten elements in my other books. I write these notes to self. I had a couple drawings. And I said, well, I want this journal to feel like your closest friend gave it to you. Because that's my whole purpose in doing this work is I want people to become better friends with themselves. So I wanted to feel that way. And we kind of sat there and I was like, what if I just handwrite and design the whole thing? And it was kind of in this moment. And she, again, I'm sure she said, oh my God, in her head. But because they're so incredibly excited and supportive of my work, she said, great, let's try it. And, you know, the thing I remember, it was about an hour later, I walked into the kitchen and my husband was there and I was like, oh my God, what did I just sign up for? I just said, I'm going to design. And I think, you know, Andrew, I am, uh, this is one of my core qualities. I leap 
I'm a leaper in life. I just leap into stuff without thinking it through necessarily. And sometimes it gets me into really sticky situations. But I also think it's this quality. It's kind of something beyond my rational brain that pushes me into something that actually turns out wonderful. If I thought about it, I wouldn't have (laughs) said it because it was both a challenging idea and the execution actually was very difficult because you know, you have the journal in front of you for everyone listening. It's challenging to take these concepts and these practices and come up with a way to illustrate it in a very simple way that's accessible. So it was actually a really challenging thing to do. I'm very proud of having done it, but boy, did I have to edit my self-doubt a lot. Well, I think it was an awesome achievement. So congratulations. I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's look at another technique and that is choose your mental lens. So tell Mm. us about that. This is, I think, another really core concept and something that is connected to editing your thoughts, but it's really about the recognition that because your brain is not seeing facts or giving you facts, you have to recognize that it's always using some kind of filter. And if we don't choose that lens, that filter intentionally, the brain is going to choose it for us. And because, again, we just talked about the brain has a negativity bias, so it's going to focus on more negative things. The brain also loves patterns and loves its past experience. So it's going to say, oh, this is happening. Last time this happened, this is what happened to me. I'm just going to assume it's going to happen again. So your brain is always using these filters, these lenses. But the beautiful thing is we can also intentionally choose a different lens through which to see ourselves in our day. So for example, we talked about gratitude. You can choose today, and I offer this to you as a wonderful experiment. What if today, whatever situation you were in, You used your lens of gratitude and you looked for things you appreciate about that situation, right? So you have a meeting at work, you're hanging out with your kids, you go to the grocery store. What if your intentional lens was, I'm just going to look for things I appreciate? Just do this as an experiment. It's incredibly powerful for two reasons. One, you you realize how different your thoughts become. Like you just start to think different thoughts. And it's very empowering to recognize, I have the choice. I can choose every day. And so it's been a really kind of, I almost hesitate to say this, but I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I mean this very literally. It has changed my life to recognize that I can choose the lens through which I see things, including myself. So I can either focus on, this is not good enough, this is not good enough, or I can choose the lens and say, you know what, Natalie, you've accomplished a lot. You've done a lot. And I think you need to really appreciate that. It is very powerful when it comes to other people. You know, my husband and I, Avi and I, we've been together for 27 years. So we met in college. So our whole, our whole life. And I think we all know with our partner or significant other, it is very easy to focus on all the things about them that annoy us, that frustrate us. Oh, my big things are little. I mean, it's just the negativity bias, right? And I think it's really wonderful. And sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, wow, I've just been focusing on what Avi has done that's annoying. Let me choose a different lens. Let me choose a lens of gratitude. Let me choose a lens of appreciation or kindness. And so it's just this core concept that you can choose the lens through which you see yourself, your world, people around you, and it brings you different thoughts and different feelings and different experiences. So what other lenses could we use? So I've mentioned a few, right? Lens of gratitude. Uh, is very powerful. Lens of kindness is very powerful. One of the things, you know, I work with a lot of companies and a lot of teams and a lot of leaders. And during the pandemic, I was doing it all virtually. And everyone was tired of these Zoom calls and everyone started getting really frustrated. 
And I said, okay, what if every meeting you go to, you looked at it through the lens of kindness? And what I mean by that is you thought about what is something kind that I can do towards my colleague in this meeting or towards my team? Is it listening intently? Is it bringing my enthusiasm? Or is it paying someone a genuine compliment? It changes everything, Andrew. So instead of going to this virtual meeting, you're like, oh my God, another virtual meeting. I hate meetings. You're coming at it and your lens of kindness is like, oh, how could I elevate someone? How could I help someone? How could I say something kind? And it changes completely. So lens of kindness is a beautiful one. Lens of clarity is a powerful lens and it goes back to editing your thoughts. And so lens of clarity is really to me about focusing on things you can control. And so again, let's take my snowstorm right? My brain is in its negativity bias, like, oh my God, the storm is coming. It's going to ruin every, all the weekend, all the travel. If I choose my lens of clarity, I would say, well, what within that scenario is within my control? Definitely not the weather. (laughs) So, but what I can control is I can, you know, we're supposed to go see our friends and I can send them an email preemptively and make a rain date in case it snows, right? That's something I can't control. And your brain loves a sense of control and progress. The human brain is wonderful at that. And so once you focus through this lens of clarity on what are the things that I can control, you feel less stressed, but you also start making really good decisions about how to move forward. So let's look at a couple of other scenarios. What do you do when you're just not motivated? I mean, I find it difficult to believe there ever are days when you're not motivated, but I'm sure there are some, Natalie. It's such a timely question because I think so many people are feeling tired, whether it's the holidays, the end of the year, you know, a lot of, I've been hearing this from a lot of people. And I think first, it's just important to recognize that it's okay to not feel motivated. It doesn't make you a bad person or a bad employee or a bad entrepreneur. It's just human. Remember, you're an awesome human. It's okay. Sometimes you don't feel motivated. And I think that's really important. That's a big part of how to get motivated is to give yourself permission to be human and realize that sometimes you just don't. But to me, motivation, I talk about this, it's an output. And what I mean by that, motivation is a result. And if you're not feeling motivated, look at some of the inputs. So a couple things you can ask yourself. Are you just exhausted? And if you're exhausted, you cannot force yourself to be motivated. You have to take a break. You have to figure out a way to refuel. And it's a really common thing. I mean, it's usually for me, when I'm not motivated, that's the answer is I'm just tired and I need to take a break first. Are you not motivated because the thing that you need to do, you're just dreading it. It just is like this thing that you're dreading. If that's the case, um, one of the techniques I love is called temptation bundling. I didn't invent it. Some researchers from University of Pennsylvania introduced it. Temptation bundling means you take the thing that you don't want to do, like clean the kitchen, And you pair it with something that you love, like listening to your favorite song or listening to your favorite book or having your favorite latte or whatever it is. And you only do those things together. So you only listen to that favorite soundtrack or your favorite book while you're cleaning the kitchen. So you're pairing something you want to do with something you don't feel like doing. That really helps. Are you not motivated because you're actually not sure why you're doing this thing you have to do? I, a lot of people in the workplace kind of, this is the case, like they have to do this thing, but they don't actually understand why. And that means you're lacking kind of a sense of purpose in it. So you can you think about when you do this thing, whether it's a project or something, you know, and a, a task, who does it help? Like, does it help a colleague? Does it help your team? Does it help your company? Connecting to who it helps, helps you feel a greater sense of purpose and it motivates you. 
So those are a couple of things to kind of question and think about. And again, motivation is the output of them. So I've got too much to do. Great one, right? And so if you have too much to do, the most essential thing is to figure out what are the three important things that you have to get done. And then forget about everything else. And then I even have this in the journal. Then you just do one thing at a time. And I even in the journal, I have this thing. um, I'm sure you saw this page where I draw an outline of a phone and I tell you, take your phone and put it face down on this page. Leave your phone here. Write down on a post-it note or on a piece of paper, here's the thing I need to do. Go do that thing, one thing at a time. Then rip up that paper and then do your next thing. And when you've done your three things, you can go get your phone. And again, it's such a wonderful, simple technique, but by focusing on one thing at a time, it really simplifies the task for your brain. And when you get that first thing done and you rip up your paper, it gives you that great sense of progress. And that's actually very motivating for your brain. And um, on the subject of your book, you have lots of little sort of post-it notes. And there was one that particularly appealed to me that I'm going to share. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a testament to your humanity. Yes, I think asking for help is really challenging for most of us. I think that somehow we have this perception that when I ask for help, it means I'm weak or incompetent. But it's actually a giant gift that we give to the other person because, look, we're not meant to go through this life alone. We're social beings. We need each other. And when you ask for help, to me, you're just sharing that you're human and you're actually giving the other person the gift of being able to help you. Think of how good it feels to help someone, right? It feels really great. And when people tell me, oh, I have a hard time asking for help, I tell them to think about that. Think about how great it feels when you get to help someone. That's the gift you're giving when you ask for help. So on the subject of asking for help, we've got a letter and that's coming up in a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So if you'd like some help with something that's affecting you, you can write to me and I will hopefully find that one of the best experts in the world to help you with it. And thank you to the person who sent me this. I got stuck in some negative thought patterns, but my counselling kept going back to my childhood and wanting me to reopen old scars. I did some writing as requested, and I realised I can't keep going back to my childhood traumas to find solutions for my life now. I've looked at all of that so many times before. I want to be strong and able to deal with the doom loop that I get into where I'm never going to change and it's all pointless and I feel hopeless. But what I can't figure out is what is real, i.e. happening today, and what's the old patterns which are about the past. When I'm in my doom loop, I get very reactive. Everything stinks. It can't get worse. So I will explode, sound off and say what I really think, which makes sense at the time, but is really exaggeration, victimhood and hot air. And of course, this kind of truth telling does make things worse. Does that make sense? 
I want to change, but am I avoiding something by not going back to my childhood again? I came out of it okay. I did not mess up. I survived. First of all, I just want to thank the writer of this letter for their openness and honesty. I think that takes a lot of courage. And I think it's really important to recognize that. So thank you for being so courageous with yourself. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but I have a very strong opinion that we do not need to go back into our childhoods and analyze everything and resolve quote unquote everything in order to change. In fact, that's a very core belief that I've had for a long time. You have the power to change in this moment. And so much of what we've talked about, Andrew, I think is relevant for this listener. Because think about your ability to choose a different lens. Think about your ability to edit your thoughts. Think about your ability to do those things today or tomorrow or in an hour. And so I actually very strongly believe that we do not need to unpack our past. We do not need to resolve old things, that our ability to change is in this moment. And it comes from editing our thoughts. It comes from choosing different lenses. And the other thing I just want to you know, reflect on is this feeling that this person is writing about, I think is very common to us where we bottle things up and then we just explode, right? Like that happens. We're all familiar with this, right? Well, I think that speaks to another really important practice that we all have to get better at by practicing it is acknowledging our feelings and then learning how to be emotionally open, learning how to share them with others not in ways where we bottle them up and they explode, but in as they come up. And that, it takes practice. Again, I just want to be really honest. It is not something that I knew how to do. It is not something I was good at. But just like this person is talking about, when they get in this doom loop, when we get into this mindset of everything is terrible and my life is terrible, we have so many difficult emotions that are bottling up, that of course we get reactive. We don't have the capacity to receive anything else. You know, I actually want to mention this, Andrew. I had my daughter, Mia, on my podcast recently. And Mia's been my witness of my journey from being someone who was in a doom loop a lot to someone who just chooses differently. And she said something exactly to what this uh, listener wrote. She said, when you, before, she said, every little thing would set you off because you had no capacity to receive anything else. You were so full of this negative, of this gloom, you couldn't take even the little thing happening. And so I think what my advice for this listener, you do not need to go back to your childhood. You don't need to worry about unresolved stuff. Your capacity to change is today, is in this moment. And it begins by acknowledging how you're feeling and what you're thinking. It begins by editing your thoughts by asking yourself what is true, what the facts support, what is helpful to you, by writing new stories. So asking yourself, what is a more helpful thought that I could choose? What is a more helpful story that I can tell? And by learning how to share what you're feeling with other people. I don't mean like you have to give a TED talk about your feelings to everyone you meet. <laughs> That's, don't do that. But there's small ways that we can do that. And the more that you learn to acknowledge how you're feeling, to edit your thoughts, to choose a different lens, and to be a little bit more open, you will find that you can change the loop. You can change the direction of your thoughts. When you do that, you're not as on edge all the time. So you're not as reactive. And that's how we get to change. So that would be my advice. 
So I think my advice would be that you know what is best for you. And I think you've had quite a strong reaction to going back this time to your childhood. You're saying, actually, no, I don't want to do that. And I think when you get a strong reaction, you have to listen to it because there's no golden path to dealing with all of this. Sometimes at one stage in your life, it might be useful to go back and look at that stuff. But what you seem to be saying now is what I want to do is change the way I behave today. And so I think that that is the place to go. It doesn't mean that you're never, ever going to go back to your childhood. It could be at some point in the future, you might want to go back. But at the moment, what you're saying to yourself is, I want to change the way I react today. Now, let me, as a psychotherapist, give a little bit of defence on the subject of going back to your childhood. I think what is helpful, and I think you've probably already done enough to know the answer to this, is not the ins and outs of all the particular stories, but understanding your coping mechanisms. Because the coping mechanisms we learnt as a child are going to be the ones we're going to be doing today. And so you don't actually have to go back into the biography, but you do need to know where your brain is going to go. So, for example, I've discovered that when I'm in a bad place, I tend to dissociate. I sort of go off somewhere else. I go into my own private little world. I'll read a book. I can sort of really shut off. And it's important to notice that because you can then see, oh, I'm dissociating at this precise moment. And when you catch yourself dissociating, that's the moment where you have to say, no, Andrew, be brave, speak your truth. But unless you are really clear of what those childhood patterns are, you're not going to spot the dissociation quite as well as if you're ready for it. So it's almost like knowing which of the exits from actually facing the problem you're going to go to so that you're ready to, to deal with those. Or sometimes you might say, well, actually, this is just so awful. I'm going to dissociate because you know, I'm in the dentist chair and I don't really want to be 100% here in the dentist chair. And that's okay. But there are other times when, I don't know, your partner is sounding off and rather than just sort of disappearing into your own brain, it might be helpful if you did some communication at this point. So I think it's really useful not to go back over these things over and over again, but to get the patterns so that you know which of the techniques that we're talking about are going to be really important for you. And you've actually got to watch out for that backsliding because when you've had the first you know, 10 years of your life being trained to do things one way or using one particular coping mechanism, when you're not paying attention, you're going to go straight back there. And possibly you don't want to still be using the same coping strategies when you're 50 as when you were five. Mm, that resonates. I buy it. Excellent. So I think there are times when you need to do the Natalie approach and there are times when you need to do the let's go back and understand our childhood approach. And if you've done it several times, then possibly you don't need to do it at the moment. So focus on what you're saying is actually trying to work out, is it about today or is it about the past? And actually, sometimes the ghosts can arrive from the past and we need mm. to sort of say, this is a ghost. It's an old coping mechanism, but there is something today that needs to be dealt with. So how do we find that kind of balance? 
I hope that was helpful. If you'd like to do the same, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. Go to the place where it says participate in the programme. So, Natalie, thank you very much for being my witness on The Meaningful Life today. But I have to ask you as a witness, what makes your life meaningful? I love that question. What makes my life meaningful is my family, most of all, my husband, my daughter, my parents, and not just kind of their beings, but sharing love and witnessing their joy and being able to contribute to their joy. And the other thing that is kind of the core of my meaning and purpose is being able to share my gifts of speaking, of teaching, of connecting, of seeing the good in people for the benefit of others and being able to do that every day. And giving us all permission to be awesome. That's right. And human. So this is sort of where we're going to have to leave it unless you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life and the conversation continues. And we're going to be discussing how to refill your energy reservoir. And let's face it, we could always do with a little bit more energy. So if you want to find out about that and hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way and get my eternal gratitude, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.